Hello and welcome to another episode of Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Hank Stars of the band Animals That Swim. Animals That Swim were formed in 1989 and had a great deal of success in the, in the early 90s. They released their debut single, King Beer, in 92. Um, and then followed that up with the second single, Roy, which has a lot of critical acclaim. They released the debut album, Work Shy, in 94, and then followed that with I Was The King, I Really Was The King, in 1996, before disbanding later on in the 90s. Hank talks about the band and how they formed and musical influences, and also talks about his career as a film producer. Hank was great, and we go into lots of depth about the 90s music scene, as well as what he's been doing since. Join me at the end of the interview where I'll ramble on about ways you can support the podcast. But in the meantime, here's Hank. Welcome to the podcast, Hank Stars. How are you? I'm great, thank you very much. I'm I'm just sort of before this podcast, I was indulging in my probably my my most uh, sort of significant habit towards lockdown and the end, which is watching um, Bob Ross in the Joy of Painting. Oh, good grief! So, yeah, I don't know if you've seen it, but yeah, it's, just, yeah. it's tremendous. It's just everywhere. You can, you can apparently there's 10 million episodes. I find it so relaxing and just kind of groovy. And I love Bob's hair and the way he occasionally will pop up with a kind of a, a squirrel that he's rescued or a, yeah. or a little bird. You know, he's such an odd character. And that whole painting thing in his soothing tones, I, I'd literally never seen it before. I had seen it actually originally when I lived in America for a few years because my mum's American and I lived there in the 80s. And I remember actually living in a student house and seeing it and just thinking, oh, who's this guy with this big afro, you know? Yeah. And, um, and, and then just picking it up again in the lockdown. I just, I don't know, it's, it's mesmerising. I think it proves that, that people are very willing to, uh, to watch kind of slow-moving, meditative stuff and don't need a lot of flash and bangs. And, yeah. you know, there's, there's a lot of people out there for what they sort of call slow TV. Yes, you know? Because uh, this this is almost ASMR, isn't it? For the for a different generation, it's the soothing tones and the and the quietness. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yes, completely I completely get it. I've seen a few of his episodes, and you know, it's very easy to scoff at it when you're younger. But I think as you mature, this is this is just the best TV. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. And also, I think it it kind of proves to me something which I think I I think I've always known, which is if you you know if you do something that you really love even though it's a bit kind of odd and not very commercial and a bit slow, um, you know, there's going to be someone out there, if you really love it and like it and do it well, someone's going to dig it, you know? And I think that was the thing with our band, really, was that we never, ever tried to... Um, we never had a notion... Like, i tell you what, me and Hugh had this idea that we were never going to write any love songs, that we thought all lyrics were rubbish um, and that we could do better, and that, that, you know, they should be words out that they were interesting and funny and poetic and no one was doing it and we just wanted to make music that we liked like so many bands do you just want to make something that you would put on but we never tried to we were never consciously influenced by you know any particular band although we were of course subconsciously and kind of partly and we're brothers we've been playing together in the three of us since we were sort of 10 or something yeah and, and, we, and we always had that notion like everything we liked when we started the band in the kind of last year of the 80s i guess 89 everything that we were listening to um or a lot of it was kind of you know just a bit oddball and, and everyone sort of forgets that before six music it was actually you know quite hard to hear certain types of bands on the radio and it was it was all a bit of a secret mystery world and 
and it was all great fun and even stuff like the Velvet Underground and Sonic Youth and and all that stuff that was going on and you know it was all it was all kind of really cool and 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 there were not as many people were into that stuff as you as you would imagine it wasn't the commodity that's become now and there's nothing wrong with that you know I want everyone to listen to Iggy Pop and Lou Reed and Sonic Youth and Randy Newman and and, and whoever it is you know I, I want the whole world to appreciate that music but I think um, sometimes people kind of forget before the internet before six music before that sort of whole access to Spotify where you can hear every band that ever existed it was it was like a really fun little secret club you know and you'd go mm. and see these bands I remember REM playing in Worthing in at the end of the 80s you know um, yeah. when Radio Free Europe had just come out um, and and it was just really exciting and great and inspired us you know so how did how did you guys divvy up the instruments then was there like a a jostle for sort of guitar bass drums trumpet what was what was the kind of situation in the household yeah it's a really good question um well the way it started off was i mean i was a drummer for ages just a drummer and i had been living um in in the us as a just playing drums in a covers band and traveling around because i had been in bands since i was a kid and i'd always just been a drummer so when we used to play at home together as, as brothers, I'd play the drums and they'd play guitars and that was it, you know. Mm. And um, when I got back from the US, Hugh, my younger brother, had been in a few bands and I sort of had an idea of maybe trying to write a bit and possibly sing, you know. And I started off singing at a stand-up drum kit. So I was the drummer, but I wanted to sing as well, be the lead singer. So I had a stand-up kit with just three drums that I'd sort of wander around on stage and, and I actually worked pretty well. And we had a bass player that was Dell, but he wasn't very good at playing the bass. So, we, and we kind of wanted to sack him, but we felt really terrible and guilty because he was our friend. And then we found out he could play the trumpet. So we were like, okay, we'll get a bass player and you can play the trumpet. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was really just a sort of uh, kind of guilty, guilty friends thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, our first bass player was Lady Metz from, from uh, uh, she was in the Voodoo Queens. She was in Mambo Taxi. And she yeah. played on our first EP. So she joined as a bass player and then Del played the trumpet and then he stuck on the trumpet. And then I was on the drums standing up and singing. And then eventually I, I, kicked, the, I kicked the stand-up kit and we got sort of a drum, drummer friends into place so that I could jump around on stage a bit more. And then Al would play keyboards and guitars and Hugh, Hugh is the sort of main guitar player. Yeah. Um, so it was all sort of, it seems to happen fairly organically. Yeah, so when, when that kind of that, ele- that extra element of the trumpet came in, did it sort of just change the dynamic straight away? And just, you, you automatically start exploring different types of, uh, well, melody, I'm guessing, because it does take real charge, doesn't it? It's a real main instrument. Yeah, it's, that's exactly right. It was funny because we didn't really choose it. We chose it because Del could play it and we, didn't want, we wanted him to stay in the band. Yeah. And then, and then exactly as you say, once you start rehearsing, we rehearse in a place um, just down that down the Hackney Road, and it's still there. I forget the name of it, but uh, it's not the fortress. Anyway, doesn't matter. Um, so yeah, we'd be rehearsing, and, and exactly that, the trumpet. You know, you'd 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 want a melodic trumpet part in there because you had a trumpet player, <laughs> and it just it does it did sort of sidle you into a new way of thinking about writing songs, and and it was good because it stopped us from just being a guitar band. You know, there's lots of guitar bands, you know, around, and. Um, it, it did. It added a little extra dimension. It made us think about writing in a different way. And yeah, I think yeah. it, did, it, did, it did make it a little bit more unique, you know? Absolutely. I think it, it definitely sets you apart if, from, from that era. And I know there was, you know, horns and brass sections are used in, in, in lots of music, but it, it always kind of a secondary instrument or at least something to, to build the 
the ambience, if you like, or just something to swell the music. But this is just yeah. a, a very punchy sound. Well, you should say that, actually, because sometimes it was very much an ambient thing. Like on the second album, there's a track called The Longest Road, and Dale would play, just play these long notes, you know, set mm. notes, and it was sort of an underscore thing. But then sometimes it re he'd really take the lead, you know, and come blaring out and play really cool kind of chorus lines. And so we didn't, you know, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, he's going to do the Motown one section thing. It was just like whatever the song required. And I think he'd always play, there might be one or two where he didn't play at all, but mostly he'd at least do a nice kind of low tune that went under the, you know, under the melody or, but it was good because Del was, a, he's a great guy. He's a good musician, really good musician. And also didn't, didn't really have any ego. So he didn't mind if he was playing sort of melodies or leads or if he was just playing something very ambient and gentle, you know, he was very adaptable in that way. So we didn't have to, get around a massive ego like they have like the rest of the band did with me <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm sure that's not the case you touched on the lyrics uh, a bit earlier on but i just wanted to explore that a little bit because for me listening back um to some of it and i think it i don't think i really appreciated it at the time but lyrically i mean it's so different and storytelling and like i know you know it's it's a very narrative structure if you like it's not conventional but it was no. was that something was it natural? Did it come out of nowhere? Or was it something you really kind of wanted to do to set yourselves apart? It, it was it was conscious. Um, I remember Hugh saying to me early on before we'd written anything good, you know, I was writing these really kind of stupid lyrics. I can't even remember. They were sort of cross between love songs and, and sort of psychedelic kind of poetry. It was just rubbish. Mm. Um, stream of consciousness nonsense. And Hugh said to me, look, why don't you try? I remember saying something like, he had me listen to that song Paintwork by The Fall. And he said, why don't, you know, because it's, hey, hey, Mark, you're messing up the paintwork. I think that's the, that's the line, isn't it? I know that track. And he was like, why don't you try writing something about light bulbs or, or paintwork or, you know, something that, that's seemingly more mundane about really about your life or whatever. And it was a bit of a sort of light bulb moment, you know, where I was like, oh, yeah, I can sort of tell a little story here. And, you know, the, the stuff that, that I really liked and that we listened to in the house um, I remember really, particularly Randy Newman, because my mum had a lot of his records, mm. and he writes these little um, these little narrative tales and in a third person sense, great little stories. And also, I remember particularly that Bob Dylan album Desire from the seventies. Don't know if you know it, but it's got a song called Hurricane. There's one on there called Isis, and the lyrics are really good. And and it and of course Bob Dylan writes good lyrics. We all know that. But when you listen to sort of pop bands, I don't know what, what it was we were listening to. There, there was Morrissey, obviously, who was, who was writing some good lyrics. Um, there were some other people dotted around, Lou Reed wrote good lyrics. But generally speaking, we, me and Hugh felt like the lyrics were, you know, a lot of indie bands, guitar bands, were writing really poor lyrics, really weak lyrics. Mm. So we were like, let's just try and write really good stories, you know, really kind of cool stories about our lives and, and you know, that song about Roy and E Street O'Neill about someone getting shot and King Beer, I remember, you know, trying to sort of write that. And, and I was reading a lot of Charles Bukowski at the time, really into Bukowski and that kind of thing. And so, yes, that yeah. my very long answer to your simple question was <laughs> that it was an absolutely a deliberate choice. We both, we both, you know, big readers. We love poetry, novels, writing, being you, all of us. And it was a big influence, you know, and it was a big it was a big uh, decision to go, let's just not write any stupid love songs and let's not uh, write lyrics that are just rhyming doggerel. Yeah. Say, let's, for instance, say Oasis, not to pick on anyone in particular. <laughs> Oasis. 
but I, <laughs> I think listening back to it uh, like I say more recently and I, I think it just just makes you listen and I think you, you're picking out stuff and maybe you'll you'll revisit the song or it, it increases the listenability of it if that's even a word um but, and it, it reminded me of a band uh, like dry cleaning which is I'm seeing pop up on my Facebook feed and my Twitter feed all the time and I'm starting to explore this band this band that's come out in the last few years or maybe even less than that with a which do this thing where they 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 talk she talks and sings quite monotone over it but it's telling a story of something that's mundane but has a beginning a middle and an end and it could be about anything but thoughts and and the structure is just completely um different and, and just uh, it just reminded they reminded me of you and i guess potentially that could well be of an influence of some sort Totally. It's funny you should say it, because I heard them for the first time about three weeks ago and I heard Scratch Card Lanyard. Yeah, yeah. And it's fantastic. It's yeah. great. You know, I just thought it was so good. And and I do sort of, I mean, I, lost, I listen to a lot of really droning sort of ambient kind of music like Taylor Dupree and then Richie Sakamoto and Alvin Noto and stuff like that. Great lyrics, really well done, really interesting and unique, brilliant stuff. Yeah. How quickly did things start to come together in like your rehearsal rooms and studios? And did, would, did you have like a, a moment when the lyrics of the music kind of came together and you thought, ah, oh, we can really start pushing this live now? Yeah, um, yeah, there was a moment actually, we used to rehearse it. I lived in a, a sort of housing association place in um, Shepherd's Bush and it was, before we rehearsed in Hackney, it was like a sort of a big old house that we had for a six month lease on. It was like a housing co-op thing. And I lived there with my with my then girlfriend, my now wife Daisy, who who I wrote Fifty Dresses for, and um, we lived in the top floor. And then the middle floor was really kind of derelict with holes in the floors and stuff. And um, and we rehearsed the band there; it was great. And then in the basement, you couldn't even go there; it was just all mouldy and stuff. So it was a huge, great, big old house. Yeah, we rehearsed in the middle of it. And I remember Hugh played me this song um, about Harry Dean Stanton called Harry Dean, which is a, a B side, I think, to something I can't remember. And we recorded a version of it on a version of it on a little four track and and he wrote the lyrics and I sang it. And it was just and we had a bit of harmonica. And I just remember there was a moment where I thought, oh God, yeah, we, I think we've got something here. I think we've got something, you know. And actually I don't think was Dale playing trumpet. He must have been, yeah, he must have been around. But it was that song, Harry Dean, and then the first single King Beer. And with those two, I think yes, we thought, oh, oh actually we we've managed to get something which is which is ours, you know. How quickly did you sort of grow the fan base and did you did you kind of notice specific types of people coming to the gigs? Yeah, we had a couple of little stages where we were playing Hugh um, set up a sort of a, a kind of music night, I guess you could call it a club, and we had a few people come along and play and we basically run a club so that we could play it. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was somewhere in East London. I, I wish I could remember where. I can't actually remember, but um, someone said it to me. I'd remember. But it was a pub, and we, you know, and we put on gigs, and then we'd always play, and it actually worked quite well. We that was when we had the, met the Voodoo Queens and Mambo Taxi, and I remember um, there was some people that would come and play, like Eddie Eddie Tudor, Paul. You know, he came and did a set and uh, bits and pieces. People would come along, and it was quite a good night. And then we started to get a few people coming in. It was just a pub. And we get sort of maybe 30 or 40, 50 people in, in a small room, you know, mm. and, and, and we were able to sort of play every time we put it on. So we got a bit better. And then we started playing 
a few more sort of East London type venues. There's a theatre out there that we played in. I can't remember. It wasn't the, I don't know, my memory's going wrong. We did play a lot of gigs. We travelled around the place. So, yeah, so we had a thing where it went from about sort of 30 or 40 people. And then suddenly we we started, we, we got better, basically, is what happened. Yeah. And, um, you know, we started playing um, at those venues in uh, Camden, the Bull and Gate, the Falcon, um, you know, all of those North London venues just around Camden. What's the other one there? Barfly. Was it? Yeah, we did those a lot. And suddenly we play and it just seemed, and I think we made the first single King Beer or maybe we'd done Roy as well. And we got some music press and it really did help. And I remember going down with a copy of Roy um, to Broadcasting House and I went in and it was after a gig and it was like 12 o'clock. And I went up to the reception. I said, oh, I heard John Peel. Um, you know, if you bring a record in, he'll play it. And the guy on the desk was like, yeah, sure. And he just picked up the phone, gave it to me. It was John Peel and he said, oh, hi. And I said, oh, I'm Hank from Animals. It's when we wrote this song about Roy Orbison. And he said, oh, yeah, I've, I've read some favourable reviews. Just leave it there and I'll pick it up. And he came down and he, I wasn't there, but he came down and picked it up and he played it. And then we got, you know, we were getting single of the week. And as soon as that sort of thing started, because music press was still relevant in those days and we got an enemy and melody maker. And, and, and then suddenly we'd play and there'd be, you know, we would be the bat, we the barfly or, or the falcon, and then it would be completely packed. You know, no one could get in sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and that was great. You know what I mean? And it was so, it was actually a combination of being on the radio a little bit, being in the music papers a little bit, being seen as kind of hip and cool. I remember we played a gig at the powerhouse one time with Echo Belly and Gene. And anyway, it was really cool because Damon and Graham were there from, from Blur. Uh, Jarvis Cocker was there. The guy from the Alters was there. You know, it was just one of those nice... Johnny Cigarettes was there and reviewed it, gave us a review. And I remember, and I talked to Graham afterwards and he came to see us quite a few times, Graham Cox, and he was really nice. And so we were one of those bands that, because of the words, I think, and the sort of weird quirkiness of it that, that other musicians really liked. I think even Justin Frischman was there that night. Um, so it was kind of like a bit of a sort of thing, you know, it was a bit of a scene and, yeah. and, and, and particularly other musicians saw us as, as the sort of intellectual hip poets albeit drunk um, and you know so it, it was great you know it was really great that was the thing uh chris was it, it was just really fun and we felt like we were sort of kind of minorly famous and still getting to do what we wanted to do and it was just a bit like you when uh, you know like when all the AR people were going you're like oh this is yeah, it's cool man maybe i can be a pop star it's a really great feeling you know yeah yeah and so and it, you had sort of self-produced and, and released uh, the first few recordings, hadn't you? And then you, you were signed to what, what became One Little Indian. Is that right? Uh, it's a bit of a longer story. Um, I'm stop me if I'm talking too much here, by the way. No, it's fine. <laughs> it's the point, right? Yeah. I'll tell you one thing. We weren't self-produced. We had a really good producer. His name's Dare Mason. And he was, he, was, um, he was an acquaintance, a friend. And he actually worked at the townhouse in Shepherd's Bush, you know, that relatively big studio, Virgin Branson studio. You know, artists like the Queen and Prince used to play there. And he was a tape op and became an engineer who recorded with Prince and, you know, a bunch of big artists and then was just breaking out as a producer. And he was just a friend of mine who lived down the road in Shepherd's Bush. And he produced all our work and he's a really good producer. It's one of the reasons why the records aren't kind of crappy sounding and haven't dated because he was a really classic, excellent producer. So we did... We did release the first two singles ourselves. We got them pressed up, but he produced them. And, you know, we gave him a hundred quid or something. And um, um, we did the first two ourselves, which were King Beer and uh, Roy. 
And then we got signed by Shea Records to do an EP, a 10 inch EP. And they'd also done a similar thing with Tinder Sticks. And they, they did an EP with uh, 50 Dresses and uh, three other songs on it. And then once we'd done that, uh, we were approached at a gig by Nick Evans, lovely man who was running Elemental Records, mm-hmm. which was actually owned by Alternative Tentacles. Um, and Nick signed us for the first album and he's still a friend, he's a lovely bloke. And uh, we made Work Shy, which was the first record and it had our singles on it and we recorded them and then it had 50 dresses. Uh, was it on there? I can't remember any of doesn't matter. Then after that, what happened was uh, one, Lindian actually bought Elemental because it was doing quite well. It had uh, the guys that did the uh, Sopranos theme tune. What's the name of that band? Oh, um, um, you know it, don't you, Chris? You know, Oh what, God! What this morning, Alabama Three. That's the one. Yeah, I literally just yeah. saw a thing. They're they're touring again, aren't they? Or they're releasing? They are. They yeah, are. yeah, yeah, yeah. They were signed. They were signed to Elemental and doing really well. Truman's Water were on there, and um, us and a few other cool bands and AC Acoustics, and one little Indian bought Elemental, and and then uh, we did our, essentially we did our second album with what was uh, effectively one little Indian signed yeah. sort of signed to three labels in a way. You know, we didn't sell enough records, basically. So we got dropped by one in Indian. And then we were like, OK, we got signed by Reese. So that was actually the fourth label. So Snowstorm Records picked us up and they did a Best of Animals at Swim and they did Happiness from a Distant Star. But at that point, when we did Happiness, um, we'd kind of fallen out a bit. You know, being in a band with your brothers is always going to be, um, you know, fraught, as all bands with brothers know. <laughs> and, you know, we had that dynamic going on. And, and we'd got a bit older and all kinds of different boring things were happening. And, you know, I was probably drunk and high all the time. And, you know, it was kind of like that third album was a bit painful. I don't think I was ever there in the studio at the same time as Hugh. We, we would always go when the other one wasn't there. Um, wow. You know, so it was a bit like, what's the point of this, you know? Yeah. I can't really remember, you know, it just, it just, it's one of those things. We still get a lot of people, you know, in touch on Facebook or through social media. We, you know, we pop up on like the chain on Radcliffe and Maconi or, or Gideon Cole will play us or the guys on Six Music still play the records. And that's really great. Yeah. We did do a couple of songs a few years back, just kind of, we got together and made something and, and it wasn't particularly good. We did like an EP, it was okay. And I think what we realised is like for me, you know, I was the drummer and the singer. And, you know, I started making films maybe 15 years ago, seriously, and, and, and made my first feature in 2012. And I just got in totally into producing and was into that. And I, I can't play the drums anymore, you know? I don't have a drum kit in my house. I couldn't play them if I tried. I haven't sung except along to my own songs in the car. <laughs> you know, and I think what we realised was that if we were going to do a gig or make a record or do anything, we'd have to spend a lot of time practising. Yeah. We would to be any good, you know, and like quite a long time. <laughs> and I think we're all just busy and, you know, we're all friends, but it, you know, it just would, it just would be too much work. Mm. You know, how do you find time to do that? You know? And, uh, and also I'm not, you know, I don't, I do, you know, I do a bit of writing, you know, I write sort of short stories and stuff like that, but I don't, I don't, I haven't played music with a band since that band. And I don't want to, you know, I was in bands since I from, from the age of literally like 13 to like 43 or whatever it was. And that's, for me, that's long enough to play yeah. music. In bands. I don't want to do it anymore. I'm doing something else now, you know? How did getting into the world of like movie production happen for you then? Was it, was it something you studied at and had 
had already lots of interest in through the years or did you get into this at a later stage? I got into it at a late stage, totally didn't study anything at all, was just gone aimlessly. I was kind of, I, the band broke up and I just sort of went into a bit of a depression, I guess, and drank a lot of booze, did a lot of drugs. Came out of that, was working in restaurants, managing restaurants, and I don't know, I just stumbled into it really. I found some funding from, uh, I think it was the film council to, to make a short film about banger racing. And um, I did a five minute film and then I just sort of thought, oh, it's quite good fun. You know, I directed, I could direct, no idea what I was doing. So I was like, producing is okay. I can sort of manage stuff and it's also creative. And I, I, you know, I produced about 12 or 15 short films. And then um, in 2012, I made my first feature with a director, John Spire, a great guy who did Elstree. Um, and we made a film about the Oxford music scene called Anyone Can Play Guitar. And that was, you know, Ride, Radiohead, Foles, Candy Skins, you know, um, all those guys. And that was, that was our first doc. So no, I just kind of learned how to do it by doing it is the answer to your question. And, and, uh, and do you think being, a, being an ex-musician or, or someone who'd been in, in that sort of scene as well and, and writing, producing music and, and you know, everything that goes with that, did that help you? Do you think in terms of being able to to write, you know, or, or sorry, produce and and develop those those kind of those films with the musical content, especially anyone can play guitar. Totally. totally, and not not just that, but working with creatives, having been a creative myself, so understanding how the sort of creative mind works, working with directors who who can be very fantastic, but also very sort of mercurial. Um, and, you know, being in a band and having to collaborate with people. And then there's also the whole post-production side of it. You know, I love the I love the sound mix and sound design and all that side of movie making, you know. And, and so, yeah, loads of parts of it have contributed to being a producer for sure. You know, absolutely. There's lots of skills that have translated, you yeah. know, um, definitely. And how's it been for you in this last 12 months, being able to do what you love to do and, and, and your job day to day with the pandemic and issues? I'm lucky enough to have had quite a few things in post-production. We just delivered a film about the British stunt community um, in the 70s and 80s in Hollywood. You know, those guys like Vic Armstrong who did the Indiana Jones stunts and the Star Wars films and Bond and it's narrated by Ray Winston. And that's just gonna come out later in the year. I've got um, a doc that I'm involved with about the darkness, the great darkness guy's been following them for about five years and is making a film um, about the darkness, which is going to be really fantastic. Justin and the boys are just really hilarious and great. Mm. Um, and I've had a lot of stuff, luckily, that was in post-production. Stuff that I haven't we've been able to shoot and film remotely because I make, you know, pretty much exclusively make documentaries. So I've been really lucky to be able to just keep working sort of remotely um, via laptops and all kinds of stuff, you know. And, and obviously, like everyone, it's made me think about my life and and how I lead it and whether or not I want to live in London and, you know, kind of how I feel about the whole world, really. I don't think there's anyone who hasn't reflected on their sort of their place in the universe and how their life is going along when you have such a seismic thing happening. Yeah. Um, but all I can say is I've just been sort of super lucky to be able to keep working to be to be living with someone that I get on with every second, so I'm not going to get grumpy. You know, um, <laughs> that's half the battle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've got a little garden, you know. So I'm, I'm just dead lucky. I really appreciate it, Hank. Um, you, you talking to me this evening and about animals that swim and everything else that's happening. I shall now definitely be going back and, and checking out the movies that you've produced because I didn't realise. Uh, <laughs> having having seen on IMDb now everything you've been up to. 
thank you again. It's been fantastic. Yeah, really great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Hank for joining me. It was a real fascinating conversation about animals that swim. There's a link in the show notes to Hank's IMDB page, which shows you all the films that he's been producing over the last few years. Um, so really great, great stuff in there to check out and explore. I mentioned last episode that I may change this whole segment, but if you're still with me uh, at the end of the podcast, um, you'll know the drill. I, I can't really think of anything else differently to do. So um, ways to support the podcast are social media um, just check me out on um, facebook twitter and instagram and also yeah write a review and rate the podcast on apple if you want to that would be great it's, it's a it's a fantastic tool and helps podcasters and finally if you are enjoying the podcast and you want to buy me a virtual coffee the link to my ko-fi page is also in the show notes and that's it for this episode have a good week see you soon